You are listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government Representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Alex Ebsur. This episode features an interview with Kak Hoshang Mohammed, who heads the KRG's Joint Crisis Coordination Center and leads much of KRG's humanitarian response. You'll hear our conversation later about his work, the current state of the humanitarian crisis in Kurdistan, and his first encounter with American soldiers as a young boy. But first, a quick overview of the latest news out of the Kurdistan region. The big happening in the last few weeks is the formation of the Iraqi government under the new Prime Minister Mustafa Kadhimi. This is very welcome news, and both KRG Prime Minister Masrur Barzani and U.S. President Donald Trump called Prime Minister Kadhimi to congratulate him. The KRG is hopeful that the new PM will work towards resolving some of the outstanding disputes between itself and the federal government. Among them is the issue of budget payments to the KRG, which the previous government under former PM Adil Abdul Mehdi has cut. One of the ministers in Prime Minister Kadhimi's cabinet is Nazanin Waso, who will serve as the Minister of Housing and Construction. She is the only woman in the cabinet and a former minister in the Kurdistan regional government. Other posts that will be filled by Kurds will be the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Justice. For now, KRG appears to have contained the COVID-19 crisis, and some businesses and government offices are slowly reopening. As of May 15th, there have been five deaths, with only 13 active cases remaining. While still being cautious, it looks like KRG's strong and early response to the virus has succeeded. On May 14th, U.S. Consul General in Erbil, Steve Fagan, met with Prime Minister Masrur Barzani to congratulate him on the KRG's response. KRG ministries are extremely grateful for the assistance provided by the U.S. government, international organizations, and other partners, as well as to the region's health workers and security forces for their exceptional work in the past several weeks. ISIS terrorists are again rearing their heads in Iraq. In the past month, ISIS has launched many attacks against civilians and government targets throughout the country. In March of this year, two American soldiers were killed while conducting an operation near Mahmur. Now, it again appears that ISIS is setting fire to agricultural lands in the disputed territories in Nineveh, Kirkuk, Salahadin, and Diyala. And there were a number of photos going around social media of massive apocalyptic fires near Karachok Mountain, which is in the disputed territories between the Kurdistan regional government and the federal Iraqi government. Burning crops was a tactic that ISIS used last year as well, and it's especially impacting religious and ethnic minority groups who live in the area. And it's concerning to see that these terrorists are gaining more ground, especially during the global COVID-19 pandemic, which has limited government and military forces alike. But it also highlights the need for a joint security mechanism between KRG and the federal government to patrol and control these areas. And now, on to our interview. In February, I was in New Haven, Connecticut, for a conference at Yale University hosted by the organization Justice for Kurds. As one speaker remarked, the conference was like nerd camp for Middle East watchers. People like Kareem Sinjari, who is the former KRG Minister of the Interior and Peshmerga Affairs, and Americans like General David Petraeus, Ambassadors Ryan Crocker, Brett McGurk, Robert Ford, and others were all in attendance. It was under Chatham House rules, but suffice it to say that observing some of these figures having frank conversations about Kurdistan was surreal, incredible, and insightful. Among those attending was Hoshang Mohammed, who is the director of the KRG's Joint Crisis Coordination Center, which is also known as the JCC, 
and who runs much of KRG's humanitarian response and coordination with international organizations. As a KRG official, Kak Hosheng is passionate about his work and leads one of the most innovative offices in the government. Prior to joining the KRG, Kak Hosheng participated in the State Department's International Visitor Leadership Programs, or IVLP, which comes up in the interview. I interviewed Kak Hosheng on the sideline of the conference in February, which was before the COVID-19 outbreak had sent us all into lockdown and changed our lives. It was also before the catastrophic crash in oil prices and the flaring up of the budget dispute between KRG and the federal government. So we obviously didn't talk about those things. Still, the humanitarian situation remains as it was, if only exacerbated by COVID-19 and the coming economic strife in Kurdistan. I talked to Kak Hosheng again shortly before publishing this episode, and he told me that the outbreak has dramatically impacted the JCC's work. They have not been able to host coordinating meetings with their NGO partners, and all of their work has been pushed online. In addition to their humanitarian support role, the JCC is now coordinating and distributing medical aid from the international community, monitoring the COVID-19 outbreak, and delivering food baskets to low-income families that are isolated in lockdown. This is all while budget concerns in KRG have ministries cutting costs and salaries delayed across the government. The situation is bad, but they have seen difficult times in the past and will get through it with the help from their international partners. I sat down with Kak Hosheng late one night after the conference. Welcome to the podcast, Kak Hosheng. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. What is the current status of displaced people in the Kurdistan region? Currently, we have still... uh having the largest number of the IDPs and refugees there in Iraq. Uh, currently, 56% of the internally displaced people are, uh, in Kurdistan region, with their no- the number is 788,000 people. Uh, the IDPs and also the Syrian refugees, we are hosting 250,000, which is 99% of the refugees are in Kurdistan region. Majority of the displaced people, inclusive IDPs and refugees, are living in uh, with the host communities only... 20% are living 38 campus that we have in the Kurdistan region in Doha Governorate, Arbil, and Suleimani. And I understand that the number of Syrian refugees has been growing since the violence in Syria kicked off again in October. Yes, surely. Since last year's October 14th, uh, we have received uh, new waves of Syrian refugees. And uh, at the beginning, we were receiving uh, around 2,000 daily, but recently has been reduced. And now we are still receiving around between 50 to uh, 40 people daily. And the number reached 21,000 Syrian refugees uh, arrived in Kurdistan region. As of February 18th? Yes. What are some of the main needs of displaced people in the Kurdistan region at the moment? Actually, they know they need everything. When they are fleeing, you know, their homes and fleeing violence, either IDP or refugees, they left everything. They don't have anything in their possessions. We have to provide them shelter, all of the household materials, utensils, the equipment, even the clothes and shoes, you know, for the families. This apart from the uh, services that we need to provide them in the, either in the camps or outside camps like education, like health services, like vaccination, like the food, every assistance they need like any other people, you know, they need on a daily basis uh, in the Kurdistan region. And, and what role has the United States played in providing humanitarian aid to the refugees and IDPs? 
You know, before answering this question, I would like to extend our thanks to the government and people of the United States for their generous contribution since the outbreak of the crisis in 2014. The United States has been the largest donors uh, in Iraq for supporting humanitarian plans and supporting IDPs and refugees and also supporting other plans, supporting minorities in stabilization process. So we are grateful to their contribution and we very much would like them to continue as we are still facing multi crisis in Iraq. Yeah. Today, nearly one in six people in Kurdistan region is a displaced person. And I, I remember that at the height, there were 1.8 million people who were displaced, which was a, a 30% increase in Kurdistan's population. What effect has this unbelievable humanitarian crisis had on the local community? No, this uh, actually, they have created huge impact on the Kurdistan region in terms of uh, financial impact, the social impact, the economic impact, and also the, if you look at it, we have calculated, you know, the cost of uh, IDPs and refugees in the Kurdistan yearly, it reaches 1 billion US dollars. Each person, IDP or refugee daily, need 2.6 dollars to to be provided with the protection, with the security, with the safety, with the shelter, and all other uh, services. They have created a huge financial impact on the Kurdistan region, apart from the security challenges, social challenges, and also economic challenges in the region. And so what percentage of that burden is is on the shoulders of the KRG versus, you know, uh, provided by the central government or provided by international aid organizations? The majority of the burden has been uh, borne by the KRG. The international contribution or support has uh, covered around 25% through UN agencies and around 5% through international NGOs. Uh, Baghdad has not been providing any direct assistance to the KRG to cover the needs of the IDPs. So the rest, uh, around 70%, has been on the KRG's shoulders or so on the host communities. And we shouldn't forget that we haven't received any direct funding from neither Baghdad nor international community to fill this gap and to meet the needs of the vulnerable people that have been hosted in Kurdistan region. One of the points we can make, we have shared everything with the IDPs. Whatever services are available to the host communities, we are sharing with the IDPs and also refugees in Kurdistan region. Therefore, with the financial crisis that KRG has been facing since 2014 with the budget cost, costly war with ISIS, and financial impact of the IDPs, actually, we didn't have a budget. we clearly saying what we, how much we have been spending. But what we have calculated, each IDP or refugee daily needs 2.6 U.S. dollars, and yearly it's over 1 billion U.S. dollars. Wow, that's an unbelievable burden for a, for a region like Kurdistan. If you look at the population increase, which we have never planned for, within a couple of weeks, 30% of our population increased. It was uh, a shock for the region. What are some of the challenges that face displaced people who are looking to return to their homes? And does the U.S. have a role to play in facilitating their return? Surely, U.S. is uh, considered as a friend of Iraqi people and as a friend of Kurdistan. We expect U.S. to play a greater role in helping us to deal with the 
post-ISIS consequences and complexities that has been left to us, which needs years for us to deal with it. And also it needs huge funding to stabilize the communities, to stabilize the liberated areas, and also to help and encourage the IDPs to go back. In terms of obstacles in front of the IDPs return, there are several ones. The first one is uh, security and safety and protection in the liberated areas and also lack of uh, or absence of services and also lack of strong or effective local administrations and also lack of job opportunities or livelihood opportunities. And majority of the people uh, haven't been able to go back. Their property is lost, their house is destroyed. So they need special attention and special support so we can enable them to go back. Otherwise, uh, any return is not sustainable. As we have been facing reverse displacement, last year we have received uh, 9,000 IDPs once they went back. Another again for the security reasons, economic reasons, and also uh, absence of services, they were obliged again to leave their areas. So these are people who fled ISIS to Kurdistan region, then they were there for a while, then they returned yes. to their homes, but because of instability, they had to come back to exactly. Kurdistan. Exactly. Wow. In 2017, the U.S. government changed its policy so that religious organizations here in the United States could receive federal humanitarian funding with the idea that this would help support vulnerable religious communities that are displaced into Kurdistan, especially Christians and Yazidis. Can you tell me what the effect that this has had? Do you, do you see this on the ground? Do you see how this is playing out? If you look at it, we have communities directly impacted, victimized, and also indirectly. If you look at the direct community, the communities directly impacted and suffered the ISIS atrocities, Yazidis and Christians and other minorities confessed. They have suffered every types of crimes committed by ISIS against them, having direct support, having direct, you know, funding for these communities is very much important. Because if you look at the Iraqi government, so since the declaration of victory of the ISIS in December 10, 2017, actually they have not uh, allocated any funding to support the IDPs to support the return and to support the uh, stabilization. If you look at the minority areas, whatever has been done in terms of uh, rehabilitation, reconstruction of the services is only done through the donor fundies. As I have said, the USA is the largest uh, funding donors in Iraq. So, and they have been supported and this has been effective to earmark and also target supporting these communities is very much needed as they are the most vulnerable one and also they have suffered the most under ISIS. So your office, the Joint Crisis Coordination Center that you run, uh, focuses on coordinating information and resources for crises and emergencies. Um, Can you tell me about the origins of your organization and, and what you do besides humanitarian response? Yes, uh, surely. The, our office is new. It's called Joint Crisis Coordination Center. It has been, uh, our government decided in 2014 after ISIS overrun of one-third of Iraqi territories. There was no 
They recognized there is a gap in the government structure, so they decided to establish this agency, Joint Crisis Coordination Center. If you look at the mandate, it's a very comprehensive and visionary. So what we are doing, actually, first we are focusing on the displacement crisis management, focusing on the information management, on the coordination cooperation between our ministries and departments at the regional level also, managing coordination with the federal agencies, ministries, and then managing coordination and cooperation with the uh, international partners like UN agencies, international NGOs, also the uh, <coughs> donor countries, and then re mobilizing resources, utilizing the available resources locally at the regional level, at the federal level, and international level, effectively, efficiently, so we can maximize the benefit of any funds or resources available to support the IDPs and uh, refugees. This is uh, the first part of it. The second part of it, we are working very hard to establish a crisis management system in Kudusan region. For this, we have advanced a lot of critical areas that we have built in technological development, also the capacity building, institutional building, so and also putting a legal framework of crisis management in Kurdistan region. This is another vision of our agency for the Kurdistan region, and we are very grateful. We have been supported to move this strategy forward. So and we are still working on this and with a special focus on mud-made and also natural disasters that the care in Iraq in general has been very vulnerable, not only to the man-made disasters or crisis, but also for the natural disasters. So, Kako Sheng, at the end of every interview, um, I always ask the guests three questions. So the first question is usually when, when was the first time you heard about Kurdistan, but you're from Kurdistan, so I, I guess I'll, I'll flip it around. When was the first time you heard about America? Actually, it's a long uh, story when first time I heard about America. A while ago in the 90s, I was a young kid, so when I saw an heli American helicopter landed, so all of a sudden we rushed to the helicopter, they provided us some sweets. From then, uh, I have personally been known America, and then actually... When I know professionally, you know, America, I was luckily given the offer of participating in the IVLP program sponsored by State Department. Actually, I was introduced in detail to the American values, to the American governance system, to the Americans' policy-making process. So it goes back to 2009 in detail when I first known American. But the first, the first time that you ever met an American was running out to get candy from a helicopter. Exactly. I was a kid and in the 90s, remember, then uh, really it was the uh, first time. And I met in person, actually, an American soldier. And now, actually, we have very close relationship uh, with the American, for instance, uh, many American NGOs, faith-based organizations like LDS, like CMMB, like uh, Samaritan Paris, uh, I don't recall actually all of the names, but I have to attribute and I have to, you know, give credit for what they are doing in Kurdistan region and what they have done to support the, our efforts as a hosting government, as a hosting nation for the displaced people and relieving and mitigating the suffering of the displaced people. They have been very active and we are appreciating what they are doing. And we very much look forward they continue supporting us and supporting these people. Can you give me a word or a phrase that really sums up the idea of Kurdistan for you? It's a very good question. Actually, Kurdistan for me is... Uh, 
I can say everything. Um, it's part of my identity, it's part of my life, it's part of my of, uh, culture, it's part of my of education, it's part of my of, uh, you know, personal ties, links, friendship, uh, everything. The, the name of this podcast is Kurdistan in America, so it's only fair if I now ask, what is a word or a phrase that sums up America for you? America, if I say in one phrase, actually, stands for us for uh, what I have known, you know, for values. What kind of values? Human values, extending hands to those who need help, supporting those who are suffering. This is what uh, I think America stands for. Well, thank you, Kako Shang. This is, it's been really interesting to talk to you. Um, your office does some amazing work, and it's an honor to, to sit here with you. It's an honor you know, to be invited. Thank you very much. I first arrived in Kurdistan in August of 2010, working as an English teacher at a school in Erbil. With my first paycheck, I bought a motorcycle, and over the next two years, I traveled on virtually every major road in the Kurdistan region, putting more than 12,000 miles on the bike. By the time I left in 2012, I had come to know and deeply respect the diverse people of Kurdistan. I've been living in, studying, and working on issues related to Kurdistan almost continuously for nearly a decade. I've been there for many highs and lows in Kurdistan's recent history. At the low points, I've always been drawn to a refrain in Kurdistan's national anthem. Kesnale Kurd Mirdua, Kurd Zindua, Zindua Ketnanewe, Allah Kaman. Let no one say that the Kurds are dead. The Kurds live on. They live on, and never shall we lower our flag. The ability of the people of Kurdistan to overcome and to thrive after unimaginable tragedies and against insurmountable odds is unique in my experience. The profound sacrifices that Kurdistan's families have made to protect and to shelter groups that were persecuted by the Islamic State have left an indelible mark on me. More importantly, though, I've watched and in a small way helped the relationship between the United States and the Kurdistan region to grow deeper and more detailed throughout this last decade. If you can't tell from my name or my voice, I'm not Kurdish or of Kurdistani origin. I'm an American. But I continue to believe that the deep bonds that exist between our people are forces for peace and prosperity in the Middle East and across the world. I'm sorry to report that this will be my last episode hosting the podcast. After five and a half years, I'll be leaving my role at the KRG representation in Washington later this month. In the coming week, I will be releasing a few more interviews that I've done as special editions. After that, one of my colleagues will be taking over my hosting duties. So stay tuned for more episodes. That's all for this episode of Kurdistan in America. Thank you for listening. God bless America and Herbiji Kurdistan. I'm